0: In Psalm 2, David asks, why do the nations rage? Why do the people imagine a useless thing? Why do people imagine things to be true that are not true? In this video series, we are considering the great deceptions of our time. Today, we consider the second great deception, gender feminism and the denial of sex differences. During the mid-70s, I read a book by Steven Goldberg entitled The Inevitability of Patriarchy. In it he defined modern gender feminism, quote, men and women are identical except for incidental characteristics such as genitalia and the ability to give birth, End quote. You can decide for yourself if those are incidental characteristics. But since the 1960s, gender feminism has argued that male-female differences are not natural but are rooted in patriarchal oppression. And if it were not for that oppression, male and female outcomes would be virtually the same. To put it another way, when you see a disparity between men and women's incomes, the cause is this oppressive patriarchy. The same is true for job choices, doctors, lawyers, teachers, the clergy, even blue collar jobs. According to gender feminists, oppressive patriarchy explains role differences in the home and family. The modern gender feminists rule out sexual biology to explain almost all differences. They argue that the differences are socially constructed. In Psalm 33 6, we learn that God created the heavens by the word of his mouth. Theologians call this God creating ex nihilo, out of nothing. Modern feminists believe that they have the power of God, that they can create reality with the words of their mouths through indoctrination and coercion. They can change human nature itself. This has led in turn to the obsession with transgender identities. If gender can be spoken into existence, the possibilities are endless. What does the Bible say about all this? First, I need to make it patently clear that the Bible ascribes to women complete value without compromise. It is the most influential book in the history of the world with regard to women. One time at CCU, I had a student come to me, a Christian student who had a friend at a secular university. And this friend had gone to the internet and cherry picked some verses that made the Bible look like a misogynist book, critical of women. And I told this young woman, I said, I will deal with these verses one by one in a moment, but first I want to make a general statement. The Bible has done more good for women than all other books in history combined. The Bible has done more good for women than all other books in history combined. I would refer you now to chapter two of my book, Seven Ideas That Changed the World. And chapter two deals with how Christianity has changed the role of women. And I rejoice in this. I love it that my wife and daughters live in a society where they are given full and equal value as human beings, created in the image of God. And I am not denying that women have been victims of horrible injustices that cry out to heaven for redress. 45 million human beings are being trafficked in the world at this moment, and most of them are young women. This is an outrage that the Christian church is battling to stop. When I travel outside Christian culture, I am grieved at the horrible treatment of women. Go back to Genesis. Men and women are clearly distinct. In Genesis 2.20, it says that God made women to be a helper to men. In Genesis 3, it says that she will be subordinate to her husband. Move to the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, the Apostle Paul says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In 1 Timothy 2.11, Paul says, that men are to be the leaders and teachers in the local church. In Ephesians 5, wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. And by the way, three verses later, the Apostle Paul says, that husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives, just as Christ died for the church. So that's the real radical teaching in Ephesians 5. I think it's also important to note that Jesus Christ, in selecting the apostles, selected all men, and the Roman Catholic Church makes this the basis for the male priesthood. But I think even more important is that God became incarnate in a male body. I remember one time when I was at the University of Colorado uh, we invited a guest lecturer, a famous German theologian, and a number of us were to have lunch with him before his lecture. And I remember sitting directly across from him and I had resolved not to say anything, but I overcame my inherent shyness. And I asked him, Professor Penenberg, why was Jesus Christ incarnate in a male body? And he said, oh, that's just a concession to the culture. And I thought, if that's a concession to the culture, it's the only one he made. He came in an obscure country. He had no academic credentials. He had no political credentials. He was materially poor. But God chose for his son to become incarnate in a male body. And I think that's significant. Women make different choices than men, and the more freedom they have, the bigger the differences become. Uh, Many of you have become familiar with the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, and he observes that in the most egalitarian societies in our world, you have the biggest differences in sex roles. And he says the reason is because the more freedom women are given, the more they choose different roles from men. Let's go back to Goldberg for a moment. He observes that almost all Nobel laureates in physics and mathematics are men. Uh, all world chess champions have been men. Almost all grandmasters in chess are men. And even almost all theologians and philosophers in history have been men. It also must be said that almost all violent crimes are committed by men. And statistically, the vast majority of people with low IQs are men. A male biologist writing in the New York Times said, and I think it was tongue-in-cheek, who needs men? A woman now can, through in vitro fertilization, have babies without men. So who needs them? Well, may I just make a couple of suggestions to a young woman reading this, say, in New York City. First of all, I think there are probably a number of people in New York City who would like to do her harm. And she is protected by a thin blue line of men. Uh, It is attributed to Orwell the statement that men sleep peacefully in their beds because other men are prepared to do violence on their behalf. The same would be true of women. But there's another way that women are beholding to men that people don't usually think about. Almost everything that has ever been invented was invented by a man. Uh, George Gilder Uh, argues that men have the capacity to innovate and that all economic growth comes from innovation. And yet also these inventors, which Gilder says is one hundredth of one percent, must have stable families and or a stable society, uh, law and order, all are indispensable for a creative genius to do his work. By the way, I might add, men come in real handy in raising children. Goldberg has studied ethnographic information on every society that he knows of in human history, and he said there are more than 4,000 of them. And he says there are no exceptions. Every single one of them were ruled by men. Now he said his theory of the inevitability of patriarchy is just that, a theory, but he says it seems like the evidence is overwhelming that it is a scientific truism. I remember a young woman uh, at the University of Colorado asked me after class if it bothered me that 95% of the CEOs of America's big corporations were white males. And I said, before I answer your question, can I ask you one? Does it bother you that 100% of the cornerbacks, not quarterbacks, but cornerbacks in the National Football League are African-American males. There are hundreds and hundreds of millions of women in the world. But not a single one of them plays cornerback in the National Football League. There are way more than a billion white people in the world, but not one of them is talented enough to play cornerback in the National Football League. Thomas Sowell has observed that all over the world in every society, different groups perform different functions and do them well, and nobody really knows why that is. And so the fact that 95% of the CEOs are white males is not indicative of some conspiracy any more than all the cornerbacks are black males as some sort of conspiracy on the part of the NFL. It's just that different groups do different things well, and that's reality. One last observation in the early 1970s when I was attending theological graduate school, there was a wave of what was called evangelical feminism, and it was calling for female pastors. At that time, I was certain we would end up with lots of women leading our churches, but it hasn't happened. Today, better than 99% of our evangelical churches have a male head or a male senior pastor. Even evangelical churches that are open to female leadership still have male pastors. I have informally polled my students and overwhelmingly my female students who go to church want it this way. Let me conclude with this. I have been asked scores of times what is my view of women in the church and I give a four-point analysis to the young women in my classes. Point number one, theologically I think the Bible calls for male leadership in church at home, which I referred to above. Number two, women have done everything in the history of the church and have done it brilliantly. They have been great missionaries, great evangelists, they've started orphanages, they've started churches, they've started denominations. Women have done everything well in the history of Christianity. Point three, whenever In a missionary situation, a church settles in to ongoing, everyday life. It is always led by men, and it does not matter what the culture is or what the time period is. It is always led by men. And point four, young women, no man can keep you from doing the will of God for your life. You trust the Lord, and He will lead you to do and enable you to do exactly what he wants you to do. I would be remiss if I did not mention some of the negative consequences of gender feminism and they have been severe. The first and probably most important and gender feminism has called for the unlimited access to abortion on demand. Since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 in the United States of America 61 million babies have been aborted. The gender feminists set as their standard for women's success equal outcomes with men. in Income, job choices, family roles, nothing interferes with gender equality like having a baby. Most women will have babies, and that really affects the decisions she makes. God does not call all women to have children, but he calls most of them to and nothing affects their choices like having that child. Essentially, all income differences can be explained by women's choices with regard to raising children. So terminating those children has been critical to gender feminist objectives, and they have fought hammer and tong for the unlimited right to abortion, and they still do. Roe v. Wade gave them that absolute right. It allowed any woman to have an abortion, at any time during her pregnancy, and for any reason. And I consider this to be a severe and catastrophic consequence of gender feminism. Let me mention a second negative consequence, and that is what Christina Hoff Summers has called the War Against Boys. And she says, quote, It's a bad time to be a boy in America. In the view that has prevailed in American education, Boys are resented, both as unfairly privileged and as obstacles on the path to gender justice for girls. This perspective is promoted in schools of education, and many a teacher now feels that girls need and deserve special indemnifying consideration, and it simply is not true." Men have been emasculated and are constantly under attack. Gender feminists appear to be angry at men. Dr. Somers argues that our society, especially in education, is discriminating against boys, not girls. I had the privilege of having lunch with her one time after she spoke at my university, and I asked her how it felt to be hated by every women's studies department in America. She said, I feel bad about that, but my compensation is that I have reality on my side. A third observation I would like to make, and a third negative consequence, is that the full force of government has now been brought into service for gender feminist objectives to the detriment of men. The main culprit here is Title IX. Title IX was passed by Congress in 1972 and banned sex discrimination in education, especially educational programs that receive federal funds. The original law seemed reasonable and was short. It's about a page long. But as often happens with laws, Title IX in the hands of gender feminists and judges soon became a bludgeon with which to beat men. What was especially bad was what is known as proportionality. In other words, if a university has 50% males and 50% females, it must devote 50% of its athletic funds to women and 50% to men or 50% of scholarships have to go to women, and 50% of athletic scholarships go to men. The best known result of this is the death of many men's sports at the collegiate level. More than 450 men's wrestling programs have disappeared since 1972, and men's swimming, tennis, track, and baseball have been badly diminished by Title IX, as college administrators try to achieve proportionality. Harvard University has 50 full and part-time employees whose sole task is to enforce Title IX. Men are far more interested in sports than women, but Title IX passes over this consideration to a draconian implementation of statistical proportion. In 2011, the Obama administration sent out a Dear Colleague letter to educational institutions. The result of it was that when men are accused of sexual harassment, the man accused is denied due process. He could not call witnesses in his own defense. He was not even allowed to know who his accuser was. Title IX's problems are theological. They make a wrong assumption about human nature, that men and women are identical. Originally, the champions of Title IX thought that the more female athletes you had, uh, the more CEOs in corporations you would have. Now, it hasn't worked out that way, but that was the theory. And again, based on bad theology. Title IX makes two contradictory assumptions. One, women are equal to men. Two, women need the overreaching protection of the state. It also assumes that men are guilty until they can prove themselves innocent and that women should always be believed. Christian theology teaches that women as well as men are sinners and capable of every kind of evil. Even Christian institutions implement Title IX requirements without realizing they are contradicting their own theology. And finally, a quote from Dr. Somers, Title IX was not an equal opportunity law. It was a mandate to change conventional understandings of what it means to be a man or a woman. I would like to make one last observation, a negative consequence of gender feminism. The Christian Church in America and possibly around the world has become effeminate, and men are absent in the millions. There's a very entertaining book written by a Christian sociologist named David Murrow. It's entitled, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And in the book, he says that the average evangelical church in America, once you eliminate all of the statistical variables, is 60% female, 40% male. In the mainline churches, it's 70-30. In the black church, it's 80-20. The biggest problem in the church is not a lack of women in leadership. It's that you can't get men to do anything. Murrow says that in a typical church, only the pastor and a number of women actually practice the Christian faith. I have students ask me if it's okay to have a woman youth pastor, and I respond, that's fine if you don't care if you have any young men in your youth group. For whatever reason, young men tend to respond much better to male leadership. And therefore, in the church, we need more male leadership, not less. Well, thank you for listening. I know this is a controversial topic, but I thank you for getting this far with me. I hope you will approach this biblically and prayerfully. Please see the resources below, and may God bless you in a mighty way.